0: back to our present future, explorations in regeneration. This episode is with Joe Brewer. Joe is a bit of a Renaissance man in that he brings a diverse set of studies and experiences to his work in regeneration, including complexity, cognitive science, earth system science, philosophy, the study of indigenous cultures, and many more. He is the author of The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earths, a book that began with an online study group called Earth Regenerators that has grown into a diverse and wide-reaching network of people and projects supporting each other to better understand our predicament and discover the work that is each of ours to do. In this conversation we look back at the deep history of humanity and our planet from an evolutionary lens exploring the concepts of social niches, entrenchment, evolutionary bottlenecks, and more, and we discuss how a bioregional focus on interconnected communities of projects can provide a pathway for regenerating the earth. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe Boyd. Okay, Joe, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. It's uh, very exciting to be together with you. It's been a while since we've touched base, and I know you've been going around giving these wonderful talks, which I'm excited to catch up with you about. I actually just watched this morning one from the Great Lakes, and I was super curious to hear what happened in the follow-up. But before we dive into that, and your book, and all the work you've been doing, if you could just give a brief introduction of yourself and what have you been up to in this life so far?
1: Well, let me just start by saying, um it's really an honor to be invited into the conversation and it's nice to see you again. Um, I would begin by saying that I am uh someone that you might call a you know, transdisciplinary thinker, a polymath or a, just someone who doesn't fit in the boxes. Uh, I, I'm a voracious learner, and I grew up in a somewhat deprived environment, meaning I grew up on a farm in the Midwestern United States of Missouri. I like to jokingly say I was born before the internet, and the internet became widely available when I started college. I say it that way because I sort of came into adulthood exploding into access to information, both by becoming a university student after growing up on a farm in the country, and then having you know, a short time later, things like Wikipedia, and <laughs> just this, you know, go down whatever rabbit hole I want. And the main focus for me, I would say across my life, has been to understand why I feel like something's wrong in the world, which is something I felt from a very young age, At the age of three, why are kids mean to each other? You know, why do um, parents fight and break up? I, my parents divorced. Uh, and just other, other aspects of initially very intuitive and later much more concrete understanding that something's deeply wrong in the world. Together with what is the world? What is real? What is knowable? Always philosophically inclined to ask the deep questions. And then coming to a place as we'll explore throughout our conversation, um, You know, what does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to have a purposeful life? What is happening in the world today? What makes this a historic and unprecedented moment not just for humans, but at a planetary scale, possibly at a cosmological scale. And then how do we live through this and safeguard humanity's future when there are very serious threats? Um, And maybe I'll just stop there and say that my inclination, having been a farm boy and also being an intellectual, is to bring together deeply academic, intellectual kinds of knowledge while also rolling up my sleeves, getting dirt under my fingers, and applying whatever I learn directly to my own life and to the work around me, collaborating with others. So I'm very much a learn and do kind of person. And maybe that'll be a good enough introduction for today.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I'm sure we'll we'll touch on it as we get in. But I one of the things that has been wonderful in getting to know you, and you have a wealth of... Great webinar presentations that I dip into frequently is your ability to bridge all of these different sources together in a really palatable way. And maybe you, I could ask you to just mention a few of your top influences in terms of your studies and how, what you bring to your analysis and your your feeling into the situation that we're in. As you know, kind of what's what's in the tool belt of uh, main tools. I'll
1: start with. Uh... Um, where it would be like intellectual or academic categories, so philosophy, um, cognitive science, the study of the human mind, and then how that relates to evolution, human evolution, but evolution in general, minus the uh, and then also into the earth system sciences. So I was trained in physics and in complexity science, then later in atmospheric physics and what's called earth system science is the integrated knowledge of how the dynamic Earth works. And much of what I do now is a combination of complexity together with applied or embodied philosophy together with studying the dynamic Earth. And what this perspective, this kind of knowledge brings is an understanding that the evolution of cooperation within all species gave rise to a very particular kind of of primate which gave rise to a particular kind of hominid, which gave rise to humans. There's a whole story, a multi-million year story there. And humans um, inherited ways of engaging in social behavior and cooperation that gave rise to human language, to human culture, and then particular kinds of cultural evolution that are unique, that are different from the evolution of non-human cultures. I start in this way because um, right now we're in a planetary predicament. Its simplest expression, and I say simplest with finger quotes, is uh, the climate crisis. Because a lot of people think of the climate crisis as the most complex problem humanity has ever faced. But actually, climate change is a symptom of something deeper. It's a symptom of runaway cultural evolution in the human lineage, where human behaviors and human cultures have literally destabilized a cascading network of Earth systems, and the climate system is only one of them. And so it's actually a much more complex story than climate change. Um, And what it's created is a context where we are entering into a full-blown mass extinction event at a planetary scale, uh, a geologic change in in which geologic epoch we are in. For those of you who know the words, We are no longer in the Holocene and we've entered the Anthropocene because we've entered a time where human impacts are dominating the dynamics of the earth and the earth's evolution. And this places humans and many non-human species at risk of extinction. And so we're in a moment of of unprecedented challenges, unlike anything the planet has ever dealt with before and unlike anything humans have had to deal with before. Our evolutionary inheritance gives us a number of capacities that are poorly suited to our current situation. So just as one example, we tend to have very good understanding of concrete risks in the present moment and very poor understanding of systemic risks that are spread out in space and time, just as an example. Our evolutionary history gives us an inheritance of capacities that are poorly, um, they have not prepared us well of the situation that we're in. But they've also given us capacities to learn and collaborate that make us uniquely capable of dealing with this complexity. But it's very subtle how it works, and nothing is guaranteed. And so maybe that is like a tantalizing entry into the conversation that follows.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think uh, where I'd like to take that next is to ask you to riff a little bit on social um, social niches, cultural scaffolding and kind of when when in the long history of humanity and even pre-humanity bring in ice ages bring in the cycles of earth the Holocene etc when we took a path down this direction and where we've seen in indigenous culture some other examples of, of what we're capable of
1: yeah to be able to tell the story uh, in a way that everyone can understand it. I want to just um, define a couple of terms because I don't want to use these words without a shared understanding. So one thing to start is most people don't understand how evolution works. It's not, not taught very well in our schools. There are a lot of misunderstandings about it. But one of the understandings people do have is that we inherit genetics, that I can pass on my DNA to my children and they will receive a genetic inheritance. So that's one thing that people do know. What a lot of people don't know is that that is only one inheritance system that life has given us. Another inheritance system is called epigenetics, which is that our physical and our social environments help to determine which parts of our genes are expressed. And that means the structure of the womb in which the developing fetus for a human is forming will shape, like if the mother is starving, that changes the nutrients that the the fetus receives, and that changes which genes are expressed, which later can lead to eating disorders or other things. But it's not specifically genetic. It's in the social environment, but it's still biochemical. That's another inheritance system called epigenetics. But there's another one that we have that's really important, which is that we can inherit a social niche. What this means is there's a structured social or technological environment an ecological setting that we don't have to create for ourselves. A non-human example of this is beavers will create a dam that changes the physical structure of a river, and then the offspring of the beaver parents will inherit the dam in that river system, which is a social niche, a social environment in which the life system of the beaver exists. And that social niche is inherited non-genetically. But it's also not simply behavior. The behavior of the beavers created that niche, but they actually inherit a changed river system. In human context, this is profound. The example I like to give is if you were born in New York City, you inherit the subway system, a a transportation system to move goods and people around for the way the economy works that you didn't have to build yourself. And that can continual accumulating changes with technological innovations, with institutions. So this idea of inheriting a social niche is really important. I give this context because the way that human evolution has created the planetary crisis is the way that we inherit social niches. And we inherit social niches like the subway system in New York, which is structured environments that can accumulate changes in a specific direction, And that accumulation can become exponential change, like look at how the evolution of technology for cell phones is an exponential adoption curve, an exponential rate of where what took 30 years for dramatic changes later can be passed in five years of technology and innovation and later be passed by five months of technology innovation with these information ecosystems. That is the evolution of social niches. And so this exponential change occurs in the uh, inheritance of social niches and humans do it through language and technology part of our social niche is shared language shared stories directed teaching and learning so i could sit down with you and show you how to use a smartphone and you can see with touch screens for example a six-month-old child can jump right into the social ecology of the information age and bypass millions of years of cultural evolution that other primates like gorillas and chimpanzees have no access to or have very limited access to. And in this, the cultural scaffolding becomes supports for this kind of learning. And the social niches are the environments that we inherit. So you see, I'm just giving some language. We can go much deeper into what these things mean. But it is this capacity of cultural evolution that is unique to humans. There are a lot of ways that cultural evolution happens for songbirds and the evolution of song, for whales and the songs that whales share, for technologies like how to open a coconut by monkeys. There are lots of kinds of cultural evolution that humans share with other species. But this ability to design and accumulate innovations in our social niches, culturally scaffolding them so that we can accumulate cultural evolution, seems to be unique to humans. And it is this ability that created runaway cultural evolution that allowed what would otherwise be a fairly humble primate, the Homo sapiens, our, our human ancestors, to transform the face of the entire planet in a relatively short period of time. And so um, so that's a bit of the context. Now, what happened uh, formally is that Anatomically modern humans became the last human to exist because there are many kinds of humans. I'll just name one. Neanderthals are a type of human. Neanderthals went extinct about 30,000 years ago. We now know that most of us alive today have some Neanderthal genes because they were shared. There were It was interbreeding between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals in Europe 30,000 years ago. And then the Neanderthals went extinct. But there's Astralopithecus boisei. There's what's called Cro-Magnon. There are others um, that other names of different kinds of humans. All of them went extinct. The only non-extinct human species is Homo sapiens, and this occurred during the last ice age, which means 12,000 years ago. When the most recent ice age ended, it was the first time that there was a stable warm period, because there have been ice ages for about three to four million years. It's the first stable warm period in which anatomically modern humans, Homo sapiens, could spread and create complex societies. Within about 1,500 years of the end of the ice age, um, agriculture was invented in five different places on Earth: in Mesoamerica, in Southeast Asia, et cetera, et cetera, in many places. So the you know the ancestors of the Mayans of the Aztecs in Mesoamerica the Sumerians and the Egyptians in Southeast Asia and in the Middle East and so on. And then began a type of cultural evolution of city-states, warrior chieftains, empires and civilizations until about 500 years ago, the first globalized trade network emerged with what we now call globalization. And while that did arise from colonization processes in Europe, It may have happened from somewhere else. It's where you get into the work of Jared Diamond and and others who explore this. But the important lesson for us is that anatomically modern humans did not have a warm, stable climate to create complex societies until the Holocene, until the end of the last ice age. And that between then and now, we became a planetary species. And that we completely altered the evolution of the Earth. Because the, the dynamics of the earth that create ice ages should have started bringing us back into ice ages again, another ice age, about three to 4,000 years ago. And the work of William Ruddiman, for those who want to look him up, will tell us that because of deforestation with all of these city states and empires and civilizations between 8,000 years ago and 4,000 years ago, human-caused climate change very slowly kept us from entering another ice age we should be entering another ice age right now. This is before fossil fuels, before the industrial revolution, before the scientific revolution, before corporatism and corporations. We already kept ourselves from entering another ice age because of the cumulative effect of complex societies distributed around the world across a span of 4,000 years with all of the deforestation that occurred accompanying it. And so this just shows you how subtle and complex this story is. And how unprepared we have been to understand it and to manage the complexities that are that are in place. Just so multiple thousands of years nested within processes that are millions of years old, like the geologic parts of ice ages, and how that gave rise to unstable climates in Africa, which accelerated the adaptation of our ancestors to become active social learners, which gave rise to language in our ancestors, which eventually gave rise to only one human species surviving the last ice age. And then during the warm period of the Holocene, becoming a planetary impact as a species. There's a very complex story. I'm just sketching it. As you could see, many PhDs of learning are involved in telling the story properly. But I think it's really important to appreciate how unprecedented this really is and how unique in history This is the earth has never had to deal with a species like us. And we as a species were not prepared by our evolutionary history for what was opened in the Pandora's box of human culture that we're now dealing with today.
0: Yeah, I want to bring in that common notion or rebuttal to concerns about climate change. Every generation has their crisis. They think it's existential Right, and it always passes. There's this sort of sense of um, you're overreacting, right? And following everything you've just laid out, it seems like we could we could understand that pre-agricultural revolution, industrial revolution, we were already on a trajectory where we would become aware of a serious need for a course correction of the way that we want to inhabit this planet. If we are able, uh, if we will, you know, be capable of inhabiting this planet. So whether we had another ice age and we're going to need to adapt to that or whether we realize, okay, we we put this on a different trajectory and now we, we're in unknown territory. We're going to need to adapt to this or in the current situation where we have climate change. And I think the way I usually summarize in my conversations is there's climate change and there's ecological degradation or ecological collapse. That's kind of like a catch all for biodiversity, for damage to the water systems. and Just because there's often this notion of Picking out points of well, CO two and the Earth is actually greening, and these different things on the in the Earth science systems level of climate that breed a lot of doubt or require a lot more education. And so, understanding that our land use, the way we engage with the land, and what the impact is on the ecology and how that's degrading, all of these paths lead us towards a sort of inevitable facing and uh, the truth of we we really need to significantly adapt. right? What do you think in the terms of coming back to that frame of of social evolution and these different social niches, where are the emerging social niches that give potential rails or pathways that we can graft onto? And where are the ones that are large? And and maybe you can point out some of the inadequacies that are, are present in them.
1: Yeah, this is a really good question. Let me start with the oldest um, pathway of evolution for human cultures that we can draw upon, and that is indigenous cultures. So what I like to say is that it is not the case that all indigenous cultures are sustainable, but it is the case that all sustainable cultures that we know of are indigenous, which means that, the, you know, human cultures are human cultures, which means that Some of them come and go, some of them stay around. And when we talk about something like the Iroquois Nation of the Northeastern North America or the Mayan people in Mesoamerica, we give these examples of what are sustainable, long-lasting human cultures. One thing we can see is that they lasted for thousands of years, that they still exist today, that there's a lot to learn from them, they survived 500 years of colonialism and attempted genocide. So they're very resilient. Also, they too have changed. There's not a pure sense that the indigenous culture of the Iroquois nation is untouched by 500 years of colonialism or globalism, et cetera. You know, it's, it is evolving as well. So they are contemporary human cultures. They're not time capsules idealized from the past. But also we need to recognize that We know them from the Holocene. We don't actually know what they were before because that we just don't have um, enough archaeological evidence, although archaeology is increasingly telling us the story of, for example, the human presence in the Americas from 30,000 years ago forward, which is that there is some record during the Ice Ages, but we just are very early in telling that story there's a lot more we have to learn. So we need to be humble about that part of it. So one part of this is that there's a lot we can learn from the wisdom traditions and the cultural practices of indigenous peoples. That is a very important, longer history that we have to draw upon. Then we have, um, I just might call them to begin, just alternative life affirming cultures, intentional communities, permaculture, the back to the land movements, um, gardening and uh, people who do conservation practices, ecological restoration work. Um, so if there's a collapsed fishery, how did the management system? The work of people like Eleanor Ostrom studying common pooled assets. How did people who engaged in semi-nomadic grazing practices, where maybe they had goats in the mountains of Afghanistan? How did they manage those grazing lands together? Where there's these practices that may not specifically be indigenous because they might be sedentary, semi-nomadic, horticulturalist, just recognizing that, that it's, um, it's a more diverse set of knowledge. And the thing that is shared between all of them, whether it's permaculture classes, indigenous wisdom, or, you know, horticultural grazing practices in Afghanistan, is that the culture has co-evolved with the landscape. And the landscape has a type of harmony that we can describe in ecological terms around things like climax ecosystems, the maximum resilience and the maximum biodiversity the place can hold where the human culture is embedded across multiple generations of time. Or in other situations where the degradation and the destruction of the landscape tells us that that kind of culture does not exist, so we must actively create it in that place. We must draw from other landscapes that are ecologically similar and then use restoration practices to create the regenerative human cultures for those landscapes. And you can start to see that there's a blend between wisdom practices and indigenous cultures with anthropological and archeological or social science. Notice this this is not indigenous knowledge, it's social science knowledge of these cultures where we can say, how do they work? How do we turn them into design knowledge? Then there are social experiments, like most intentional communities have failed. But then we've learned things like co-housing and some eco-villages that work really well. So again, it's social science of those cultures. How do they work? And I'm saying from the modern world, there's a very important part, which is contemporary science, contemporary social learning and knowledge. practices. And then we get into um, the ecological sciences, the restoration practices, the earth system sciences that I'm already drawing upon. So modern science is absolutely essential in this. And by telling the story in this way, you can see that I'm setting us up for a very important thing. There are multiple knowledge systems, these knowledge systems are not completely compatible with each other. So we have to create mutual respect, and mutual exchanges, like how does the Iroquois wisdom um, tradition and its cosmovision, which is not completely compatible with modern science, how do they talk to each other? And so there's a level at which we have to sit in the incompatibility of knowledge systems and bring them together. But you can also see that there's a lot that exists that we can draw upon to do this. We're not starting from scratch. We're not flying blind. We're not completely ignorant. We have huge bodies of knowledge in different knowledge systems that we can bring forth into a learning practice to, um, to create the social niches that are most likely to survive the turbulent times that we're in and that we're entering into. So I don't know if that's a good enough place to continue. Oh sure. Each
0: uh, each moment is a is a is a choice between many branches. But I think what what I'd like to take us next is to ask you to speak a bit about entrenchment and speak about the nested natures at a, a biophysical level of where we can act, and then the interrelationships at these different scales. And and then after that, if you want to weave it in now, or we, we pick it up after. There's sort of the physical, ecological dimension. And then there's the social economic cultural dimensions. And I'm very curious to understand where those um, well, a bias and assumption that I'll lay out, if we have a single project sprout up, that doesn't have enough connections to its surrounding area cultures, social economic patterns, it will be very fragile. And so how to create these ecosystems that are resilient enough, that we won't have a bunch of idealistic projects sprout up and fall, which may leave the overall movements um, of these ideas, you know, it may be a setback, right? So that's probably too much for a simple answer, but I'm sure you can handle it. Where are, where are the examples? Can you define entrenchment? Where are the examples of how we can look at this from a, you know, fractal, nested scales uh, lens of nature and then social, cultural, economic? Um, insights on top of that.
1: Yeah, that that's easy. We can do this. <laughs> actually, actually, I do feel it's easy in a sense. Somewhat paradoxically, it's easy because what's easy is to hold a sense of the whole, to have a holistic feeling. From the holistic feeling, we can start to talk about entrenchment. So, entrenchment is a developmental bias. That says when we start to develop in a certain direction, structures are put in place or structures emerge that make it difficult to change direction. And just as a, a, a really nice little example is in human development across the lifespan, there's really good research about how the brain develops its ability to learn language. And there are developmental moments, meaning as the brain is developing, and as the child is learning its own culture, the culture that the child's growing up in, that the brain creates structures to understand its environment. A really powerful example is in the auditory part of the brain, the part of the brain that's connected to the the eardrum and the interpretation of vibrations of sound, which are then turned into electrical signals. If you are born into a culture that speaks Japanese, your brain would select for sounds of the Japanese language that are very different from the way those structures would form if you're in a culture where your brain is trying to understand English. And there's really beautiful research on this showing that in English, the two sounds B and P, like boy and a P would be like plate, you know, the, the, the B and the P, you can hear those really well if you grew up learning English. Someone who learns Japanese, the Japanese language does not distinguish those sounds. The part of the brain that would segment the auditory spectrum does not make that segmentation. And that's why our Japanese-speaking friends who learn English always mix B and P, and they will never again be able to distinguish those sounds because there was an entrenchment in their brain in the structure of auditory signals that if they did not hear those sounds, Before about the age of two, they will never again be able to hear them, which means they'll never properly make them. And then you'll hear a Japanese person who's very good at speaking English, will not distinguish B and P, and they'll always have that accent in their English pronunciation because there's a developmental entrenchment in the brain for interpreting the auditory signals. So you can see that in the learning process, a structure forms, and the structure biases the direction of further development and makes it very difficult to change direction. And in some cases, like those two sounds in Japanese versus English, it may be a permanent entrenchment, meaning that the brain can never again learn that distinction. And so this applies to any kind of developmental process, not just to language learning in the brain. But what it tells us is that there are multiple levels of development occurring at the same time. So I just gave you three levels, the eardrum to the kind of taking um, vibrations of air and turning them into electrical signals, and then the uh, interpretation of electrical signals at a level that is in the auditory circuit of the brain. But it's connected to the brain interpreting language which is at a larger scale of the integration of different kinds of perceptions in the brain, which is connected to the social context of the child with their parents, with their teachers, with the language environment, which is another level. So I just named three levels. They're actually more than that, but I just wanted to make the point that a child learning Japanese or a child learning English is already in a multi-level context. So the way that we can get to the holistic understanding is to see that the the confusion we feel when we're overwhelmed, wow, there are multiple levels. That comes from the way that our schools have taught us to reduce the complexity in a naive and simplistic way that ignores reality. Reality is multi-level all the time. And there are cultures that never make that distinction. And there are cultures that make such a distinction that it's confusing and overwhelming to think about multiple levels, which means there is a developmental entrenchment in languages and in cultures that either support understanding complexity or that hinder understanding complexity. So now back to the larger scale. In some of the talks that I was giving a few weeks ago about bioregionalism and landscape levels of regeneration, I named four levels at the beginning of my talks. And I have this these four concentric circles, where they start with a small circle, which is inside a larger circle. It's just like, you know, the Russian dolls where one doll is inside another. And I went at the four levels of circles. And what I said was this, I've traveled all over the world. I've seen lots of regenerative projects. And whether the project is a permaculture uh, learning center, an eco-village, a landscape restoration project, it doesn't matter what it is. It is always defined by a plot of land that there's some physical boundary to the land that might be the boundary of ownership of the land. You know, we own these 20 acres of land. So that's our permaculture center. We own these 50 acres of land. That's our eco-village. Whatever it is that they are constrained by the plot of land. But the plot of land is embedded in a larger level, which is the ecological connections of that land. And the example I like to give is let's say that you're doing ecological restoration in your permaculture center, but someone upstream from you in the river is dumping pollution into the river that will flow across your land, enter your plot of land and leave it. There's a larger set of ecological connections. And those ecological connections are embedded in a larger level, which is the holistic integrated landscape. In this case, the watershed that the watershed might have multiple branches. You're just in one of the tributaries. So the ecological connectivity of the contamination in your tributary is connected to a larger fractal or branching structure of the watershed. And the whole watershed holds the complexity of those ecological connections. But that landscape is embedded in larger planetary processes, like the weather patterns that bring the precipitation, or the spores from mushrooms that fly through the air, and they create different kinds of relationships between plants and fungi in the soil, or other things that are on a larger planetary scale. So we have these four levels, the plot of land, the ecological connections that are larger than the plot of land, the holistic landscape that those ecological connections are embedded within, and planetary scale processes that different holistic landscapes are connected to. We could go larger to the solar system and to comets and meteors, you know, a meteor created the last mass extinction by causing dinosaurs to go extinct. So yes, there's a larger scale than planetary. But I just want to show the point that all of our regenerative projects, there's so much work to do within the plot of land that they never get to the holistic level and become systemic. And so what we have to do is work across those four levels and how the plot of land each regenerative project can be connected to processes of integration across those four levels. And that this naturally gives, gives rise to a management scale, which is the holistic landscape. And another management scale, which is collaboration between holistic landscapes. And that we already have the management scale of the plot of land. Those are the projects. So we, we don't need to create those. They already exist but they are inadequate for holistic solutions because they're not operating at these two other levels, which is that the ecological connections are addressed by managing at the level of the holistic landscape, which means that one automatically gets addressed by going to the scale that includes them. But then those holistic landscapes are limited by the things that happen between landscapes at the planetary scale. And so um, so there's a lot more to say about this, but one thing I'll say just for now, that'll open us to the next part of the discussion, is that systemic risk moves up and down across these scales, which means systemic resilience is understanding that that's how systemic risk works and intentionally managing the relationships up and down in scales. So this ability to hold the different levels in their interactions enables us to explore resilience in an authentic way. So it's like a placeholder for more conversation But I just want to name it now because otherwise this would feel like, oh, my God, that's overwhelming. (laughs) It's actually not once we put it into practice because we begin to manage the interdependencies and resilience becomes more likely to occur. So just want to name that piece as a scaffolding for the conversation.
0: Okay. Very nice. So I want to ask you now what, if you will explain what an evolutionary bottleneck is and then talk a little bit about of these eco-village permaculture small land-based projects which many of which many fail what for what reasons do they typically fail it's seen from the accounts i've heard it's it's often human it's shared governance uh, issues it's it's um perhaps um a a overly ambitious, and who am I to judge the ambition, but in the context of an ecological restoration lens, um, much more is brought in on the cultural lens that can scale up beyond. It's, It's very niche. I wonder, at the same time, how much of the current culture is just unfit to do the job that's necessary. So how to draw, how to judge as designers the boundaries of ambition for a single plot project so that you can link up with your neighbor across the way of the watershed in a way that brings shared identity and keeps each authentic to their own mission, but avoids this, um, this high proportion of failure. Was that clear
1: enough? It's clear (laughs) enough, um, because we can, we can find our way through it. Okay. Let me start with an evolutionary bottleneck. A good way to understand an evolutionary bottleneck is to think that maybe there's a population of of tree squirrels. You know, there's some population of an organism and it needs a certain kind of environment. It needs forest. And so if there's a large connected area of forest, the tree squirrels can have a large diverse population and the diversity of their population is where their resilience is because they are recombining their genetics through reproduction and they have a large population. And there might be a lot of microclimates and different soil types and different tree types and so on in a large, diverse forest. But then if something occurs where the forest becomes a set of small islands, maybe it's deforestation to put in suburban housing or or whatever, but for whatever reason, the continuous area forest, forest becomes several small islands of forest. And each small island becomes an isolated population of tree squirrels because it's difficult for them to get from one island to another. The evolutionary bottleneck is the loss of diversity within the population that makes it more difficult for them to adapt to a changing environment, which means that the entire population could collapse and go extinct as a population, meaning they could all die off because the bottleneck in this case is spatial geography, the connection of forest. But the idea is that it's a population level phenomenon. It's not an individual level. It's not this individual tree squirrel or that individual tree squirrel, it's a population. When we think in this way about human cultures, like you know global ecovillage network, just to bring it more specifically back to intentional communities, the global eco village network is a population of communities. And they may be connected to each other through information, through, you know, a newsletter, through annual meetings, through regional exchanges where the same teachers go from place to place, where they create learning exchanges so that they can op- operate like a population. And this is really good because some of those ecovillages are like islands and some of them fail and go away. And the question is less, what is the survival of this ecovillage and more, what is the resilience of the network of ecovillages? So the evolutionary bottleneck idea directly comes in right there. So now, how do we increase the likelihood that if ecovillages fail, that we never get to zero? It's like a theoretical question, right? Or a strategic question. What can if there's so it, many, yeah. Can, yeah, can I just <laughs>
0: raise the stakes a little bit and not just put it yeah. at get to zero, but get it to some level of tipping point of influ- influence for urbanization? for the pattern of human habitat?
1: Yeah, we can go in both directions. Let's start with zero, because this is, if all of them fail, then, you know, they've all gone away. And if you could say, if all human cultures attempting to be regenerative fail, that's the extreme, then humans go extinct because there's zero human population left. So you can see that the same way of thinking for ecovillages, we could apply to all of humanity. Um, But let's just use ecovillages to be focused. So let's say that I don't know how many eco villages there are. Let's say there are a thousand, because I know that there are a lot of them. So just for, for conversation's sake, there's a large number. Maybe it's several thousand, but let's say it's a thousand for simplicity. And right now, maybe there's like a 90% failure rate for intentional communities in general. Actually, a lot of them fail for the management of human affairs, for governance or reason, reasoning. I like the term management of human affairs because a lot of them actually fa- fail because of affairs, because of uh, um, founding families um, and engaging in adultery with each other and cheating on each other and breakdown and collapse of the social system. And so it's it's, it's human drama and human relationships that are at the heart of it. And so um, that's true for intentional communities in general, which means it's also true for eco-villages, which are a tri- type of intentional community. So now there are two questions that come up for us as designers. If we say, eco-villages are likely to fail because of the way they manage human relationships. This gives us two questions to, to explore. How does the ecovillage manage its own relationships within the community as an evolving culture? And how could they get better at that? And then how could that relatively isolated culture create more interaction with the larger you know, landscape that it's in, the mainstream culture, the culture that's around it, and how can it manage those relationships more effectively so that the cultural norms and practices of the eco-village might spread so that they can become more integrated with the larger economy, but be integrated in a way that doesn't entrench them in the old economy, which means that if there's if there are problems with that economy, those problems would enter the eco-village. So you can see there's sort of a protective membrane between the culture of the eco-village and the larger world. So now we have two levels that we can talk about. How do how does the eco-village create internal coherence so that the human relationships don't break down? And how can they create coherence with their larger landscape so that they also don't break down the purpose of the eco-village, which is to create different kinds of social norms and environmental behaviors and spread them into the community at a larger scale? Now we have like enough clarity to talk about this. There's a planetary network of ecovillages. So there's a population of ecovillages. And we don't want them to all go away. We would actually like more of them to succeed. And success needs to be understood at least at these two levels. That the eco-village didn't go away because it became much stronger as a local as an internalized culture. And that it becomes more integrated with its landscape while pulling the landscape toward a different kind of culture. This is the purpose, right, is to be a a cultural experiment that can try and spread environmental and other maybe spiritual, indigenous, whatever practices are the focus of that particular ecovillage. So I think anyone who's listening to this that knows about ecovillages will be nodding their heads like that's what ecovillages try to do. Now I want to bring in pro-social. This is something we haven't talked about yet. Um, Pro-social, first of all, the word pro-social just means behaviors that um, encourage cooperation to occur. So maybe it's more that it's cooperative, it's generous, it's um, focusing on collective purposes. I'm being generic because ants can be pro-social and fish can be pro-social, humans can be pro-social. So pro-sociality or the ability to be pro-social is the ability to cooperate to achieve collective benefits. An example is a school of fish that all swim together, cooperate to make it more difficult for a predator to bite any individual fish, right? So the pro-social behavior of swimming as a school of fish is an example where they cooperate to help the entire school of fish. For humans to be pro-social is to engage in teamwork in a way that increases our collective intelligence. And so... This is a whole conversation to itself. What does it mean to be pro-social? I would say anyone who wants to learn more, go to pro-social world, look at the different bodies of knowledge that they're integrating and teaching people about, and you'll see that there's a lot to learn and that it is a design practice to create pro-social groups. And so one way to create a pro-social group is to understand as a diagnostic, what would you look at when a group is not functioning very well to help the group function better? And so this is like, if you came into an eco-village that's having some problems, how would you do a diagnostic and say, well, where should they focus their attention to work better as a community? And this is where I would probably start with the work of Eleanor Ostrom, the political scientist who died in 2011. She won the Nobel Prize in economics in 2009 because she showed how humans can govern common pool assets. She identified that there are eight capacities of any functioning group They manage something and that manages something in common. So the eco village is managing the eco village as a commons. And so there are eight capacities. I'll just name a couple. They need to have shared identity and purpose. They need to have fair and inclusive decision making. They need to have fast and fair conflict resolution. They need to have equitable distribution of contributions and benefits. And then there are more. There are eight of them. But if you were to say there's this eco village and they're having problems. You could look at Eleanor Ostrom's core, they're called core design principles. There are eight of them. And you could just assess. Okay. If there are eight of these core design principles, where is the eco village doing well? Where is it doing poorly? You could do this as an observer. You could do this with interviews. You could do this with a, a workshop teaching the core design principles and then having people evaluate themselves. There are lots of ways to do it. But you would probably identify that some of these eight capacities are not working very well. And that you would then know where to focus and where to prioritize. And that's what helped the eco EcoVelage to have a higher chance of success. So the general lesson here is that there is knowledge and there are tools and approaches like Eleanor Ostrom's core design principles. There are many of these different kinds of knowledge that can be brought in to help any culture to function better as a group, and so an eco-village that is self-aware about this kind of knowledge, meaning the knowledge that helps groups to work and, to function better, is more likely to survive and more likely to be successful. So that's the first thing: is that at both levels, within the eco-village and in its relationships to the larger world, they could bring in something like Eleanor Ostrom's work and apply it as a diagnostic and become better skilled at using it. There are a lot of other things about trauma healing and about how well people can be in relationships and nonviolent communica- uh, communication and sociocracy or other kinds of collaborative governance. That you're just I'm naming that there are lots of things that could be brought in. But the most important one is understanding that human groups do not just function on their own. They need to have capacity to know how to function as a group and that they can learn and improve. And that this is a question of education and research, that the group could research ways of governing themselves better, and then they can learn how to govern themselves better. And many ecovillages do this. So that's, that's one thing. The other is there's something about complexity and emergence. So when we talked about entrenchment earlier, I was drawing upon my knowledge of complex adaptive systems and how patterns form as complex systems adapt and evolve to changing environments, like the brain of the child adapting to a Japanese language environment or adapting to an English language environment and evolving the capacities of the brain in one or the other of those contexts. Now, right now, one of the most difficult places for creating truly transformational human cultures is that there's so much collective trauma that people are not very good at being in relationships and there's so much distortion in economics about money that finance becomes a way of signaling very distorted patterns, which means power relationships about money, self-worth, poverty mindsets and conflicts around power and money cause breakdowns in all kinds of ways where, for example, Let's say that there is a project within the eco-village and they don't have enough money to do it, so they try to recruit investors. But they recruit investors that require a financial return within the old model. And without knowing it, they have introduced a form of economic slavery, which is that because of the signaling of the larger economy, as soon as their environmental goals come into conflict with their, their debt repayment and their financial goals, guess what wins? the debt payment. This is how B Corps and social enterprises, they're all struggling with this. And it relates to trauma in relationships as well as to money. And so one place that's an acupuncture point, how can the eco village learn how to relate to its larger economic context is to decolonize money and practice trauma healing about money to create economic models of exchange that are less dependent on money, or that use money in a way that maintains the sovereignty of the local projects. They don't give their sovereignty away to the investor just because of money, which is actually undermining their own authority to govern. There's a form of colonization that they've internalized, which is also a form of intergenerational trauma because colonizer economic systems are inherently traumatizing. And so I'm just naming this as a space because you can see it's very delicate, it's very complex. But most of the economic development models break down because of trauma and money and power dynamics between the people involved. And so that's a major point of focus, that within an eco-village, they can work on decolonization of money. They can work on social innovation and social enterprise. They can create different kinds of investment models. I would encourage them to be based on the commons. Which is what Eleanor Ostrom's work is about. So that those same eight core design principles can be applied to the management of money because money is a commons, or at least it can be a commons. So that financial investment becomes a support to other kinds of commons. And then, you know, we continue from there. But I think a lot of these projects break down because of this trifecta, you know, human relationships, power and trauma and money all blended together. And if we focus in that place, then we can see that there are restorative pathways like restorative justice, nonviolent communication, commons-based economics, equity-based investing, you know, and so on. There's actually a lot, and I know this is an area you're familiar with with some of your work, that the challenge is the trauma and the capacity of relationships, which is, you know, I think a lot of people think they need money and they think it's about managing money but actually that's later in the process. They have to work on trauma healing and decolonization first and sort of protect that process from money. Don't let the money into the process till they can handle it because the money distorts the field and it distorts the field because there's so much trauma about money. And so there's a whole delicate process there, but um, I see this as a way through is the decolonization of finance as a kind of trauma healing, Within the governance of human affairs around collective purposes, which is a pro-social group process, which means we can bring those bodies of knowledge about pro-social groups and work on the internal coherence of the eco-village and its relationship to the economy at the same time. So that's a lot to take in, but I at least hope it, hope it shows that it sort of maps the field of this. This is an area of focus for further, further conversation.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm formulating, I'll give it to you half-baked, a design challenge to consider the overall human family and our relationship with the land and the trajectory that we're on. How can we design pockets that represent a new norm and feed them with the patterns and the energy that will help stabilize that transition? I may be stretching the um, the analogy to ecological succession, but it's coming to mind the idea of, you know, a syntropic agroforestry project and how you may focus on a key area and then expand out instead of just sprinkling all over. Whereas, you know, the way I'm thinking about this right now, a bunch of eco villages all over with great visions, fragmented, not interconnected. Whereas if you had a cluster, a, f- a small federation within a bioregion that perhaps had a less elaborate set of ambitions and statements about their values, but could form core identity at that federated or, you know, broader group level. Um, and this is kind of, I may have been using the word, uh, the, the, the term uh, evolutionary bottleneck, not quite correctly, but I think you understood my idea. It's like, what what is going to pass through that sort of membrane or rite of passage in this next chapter that can serve as some, as a platform for the next evolution to grow out of, so that we we sort of what is the meaningful enough step into piercing the norm of business as usual, from upon which we will be humble and know we need to grow further. How okay. to design for that, and I and I'll add with just a a belief or a, or a skepticism that I don't see the sprinkled set of eco villages as sufficient I see them as beautiful projects but when I think in that term of like how do we take that meaningful step forward it doesn't seem alone like it's gonna be compelling so how, how to make that a bigger step
1: now, this is something that um, the bioregional approach really directly confronts which is that a bioregion That's just a word, bioregion is short for biological region, which is the geography in which an organism and its population lives. So a human bioregion is the landscape as an integrated whole in which a human culture can flourish and can live in a healthy and sustainable way. And which means the landscape itself is of fundamental importance. And this gets to a core trauma that most of humanity holds right now which is most of us were born into civilizations, the descendants of victims of genocide, who are displaced from their land, which means most of us do not know where we are from. So there's a very core trauma. My friend, Stephen Davies, when we were in Toronto two weeks ago, um, he raised his hand at the end of a talk I gave, and he said, I have to tell you, your talk caused me to realize that I suffer from dislocation trauma. And he talked about how as a kid, he grew up in a military family and moved around all the time. And now he's lived in Toronto for 20 years, and he struggles to let himself belong, even though he feels like it's home. And his dislocation trauma is the struggle he holds. And so the bioregional approach tells us that the human culture is only coherent as an identity if the people are from a place. And this makes sense in indigenous terms. If you go to the Pacific Northwest in North America, there are the salmon people, the people of the salmon, the people who lived on the coastlines and the rivers of the Cascade Mountains where the salmon run. And they are the humans of a particular kind of landscape. right? And in other landscapes, you'd see something similar. The indigenous people see themselves as part of a family, and more than human family, that is the entire ecology of place for a landscape, or type of landscape. And this shows us how the eco-villages can cluster together, or really any regenerative project, whether it's an eco-village or something else. It could be a regenerative farm. It could be a permaculture center. It could be an alternative nature-based school for kids. Whatever it is, is they can organize themselves bioregionally around the identity of their landscape. And then they can convene a process for their landscape. And this is something that we're helping with um, in the work we're doing now, creating a design school for earth regeneration. And the, the structure of the school is to create a planetary network of bioregions where people are living within their own landscapes. They're learning to find other people within their landscapes. They're developing a shared understanding of bioregionalism while creating a regenerative culture And trying to protect and heal, you know, ecosystem restoration and the restoration of the health of landscape as a whole while collaborating with neighboring landscapes and with landscapes that are similar in other parts of the planet. So when we were in the Great Lakes, the cities that we visited were Toronto and neighboring towns, Caledon and so on. There was, there were towns that were, um, that were around in the greater Toronto area. Then we were in Binghamton and Ithaca in upstate New York and we were in Rochester, and we were in Cleveland, and this was a network of places that organized into neighboring bioregions. At least they could learn to see themselves as neighboring bioregions. And it was interesting to see that Toronto and Cleveland the hour drive away by car, somewhat different landscapes, but they were connected through the Great Lakes. One is on Lake Erie in Cleveland, the other one's on Lake Ontario, in, uh, Toronto. And the thing that keeps them separate is called the Niagara Escarpment, which is a very special landform, which is why those two lakes are not connected, is that the water runs into Lake Ontario from the Niagara Escarpment and Niagara Falls, which is near Buffalo, which is, you know, where you look from a map and go, they're so close. Why don't Lake Erie and Lake Ontario connect? And there's a landscape connection, which is a wall called the Niagara Escarpment. And so they can learn that. They're different landscapes because of this escarpment, this unique geologic form. And they have two different landscapes, but they can collaborate with each other because they're relatively nearby. And you can see a city like Buffalo starts to make make a sense differently now because it could be the meeting place between those two landscapes because it is like Buffalo and Niagara are literally where the water that doesn't manage to go into Lake Erie from upstate New York goes into Lake Ontario instead by falling over Niagara Falls. And this place, Niagara Falls, is no longer a beautiful tourist destination. It's a point of ecological connection between two different bioregions. And just to give you a feel for how important this is, for at least 12,000 years, the Iroquois nation is the waters above Niagara Falls, and the Algonquin culture is the people to the north below the falls. And these are 12,000-year-old trade networks of people separated by Niagara Falls that, as an outsider, we have no understanding of. But if we look at the landscapes, we see that the people in Cleveland and the people in Toronto can collaborate in the way the people of the Iroquois nation, which is the people of Cleveland, the Haudenosaunee people, and the neighboring Haudenosaunee relatives who are in the Algonquin language, that are a different set of people but are very related culturally through trade networks. And then it all starts to make sense as, as a landscape. So if we now go back and say, there are all these ecovillages around the world, but they're islands. Why? Because we have not acknowledged their larger integrated landscapes, and we have not organized them into, gracias, Gemina. We haven't organized them into integrated landscapes because we haven't learned to see them as bioregions. But when we see them as bioregions, the holistic understanding is there, it's already present, and it solves the problem of belonging. We learn to belong to the landscape of our bioregion as a cultural and ecological identity. And then our ecovillages make sense. Why is my ecovillage more like the other ones in my landscape and more different from ones in a different landscape? It's because they have a bioregional identity that is shared within the landscape but may not be shared between the landscapes, and that starts to make sense. And we let the land teach us how to do this, and then that's how we we manage all the complexity involved. So this is a really big and important um, question, which is how do we learn to hold the complexity? When anyone in an eco-village would tell you, it's hard work to build an eco-village. They like struggle with so much complexity to say, well, now go out to the landscape scale. They're like. We can't even manage our own eco-village. And what I would say is you can't manage it if you are fragmented within a larger whole. But if you learn to, to lean on and become supported by the ecological connections of your landscape, the work actually becomes easier because someone else is doing their own part on a different part of the landscape and you don't have to do that part but you might have to help create coordination between the parts because you see that you're part of the same thing. And this is most visible in a river. If I'm downstream and you're upstream, we have to collaborate at the scale of the river, but we can be autonomous at the scale of our place in the river. And then we can do both more easily because cooperation arises at the watershed scale. So that's a lot to just you know drop into the conversation, but I hope it helps realize how coherent this holistic landscape is as a bioregion when we learn how to think in this way
0: yeah yeah i wonder do you know of examples or perhaps the work you're doing right now is of among the first prototypes of watershed scale applications of the common pooled asset of eleanor ostrom's work and of the prosocial work of these frameworks coming together and working? Are there other references of this kind of uh, collaborative, uh, you know, sort of decentralized collaboration? At um,
1: there are lots of them. Actually, there are a lot of them. This is what's uh, our economic paradigm of neoliberalism and neoclassical economics blinds us to the fact that first of all, those are giant delusions, and they're not how economies really work. But when we look at historical real world examples, they're everywhere. And I'll just give two, and both of them are related to fish. One of them is the Gulf of Maine. The Gulf of Maine is a shallow inland body of water that, for various interesting reasons, is the fastest warming part of the world ocean. So, you know, war- fresh waters um, melting off of Greenland. There's an eastward or a westward current that used to be strong enough to block the cold water from the Arctic. And as that fresh water came in, it weakened it. And that stopped the movement of fresh water, of cold water. And now the Gulf of Maine has warmed dramatically, causing the fishery and you know, the fish population and the human economy of, uh, of fishing to collapse. And this collapse occurred in the 1990s. And the Gulf of Maine is a multi-billion dollar per year fishery. It's a huge economy. Think of the the, the lobster of Maine and the different big game fish of Maine, it's a huge economy, multi-billion dollar per year economy, completely collapsed in the 1990s. And a collaboration arose among people from the fishing industry, among people who protected the watersheds, among marine biologists who worked with the fish populations with First Nations people from the indigenous culture, and they began collaborating to restore the fish population and build a different economy. And it's working. And they've created a sustainable fishery and a different kind of tourism. You know, part of tourism is eating the seafood of Maine. So the restaurants and the culture and the national parks and the state parks and the fishing industry and the indigenous people, they all began began to collaborate. And this is an example of governing a common pooled asset that has been successful. Another example related to fish starts in the 1980s and comes from the place where I I grew up in southwest Missouri in the Ozarks. The Ozarks is a a highland plateau in the middle of the United States where there are a lot of caves and a lot of uh, streams that are formed from the caves. And where I grew up, there's a place in Neosho, Missouri. Neosho has the oldest national fishery. And they grow a huge population of rainbow trout. And they use trains and cargo trucks. And they ship tanks of fish to rivers all along the Mississippi Basin, which means they take fish to Ohio, they take fish to Colorado, they take fish to Montana, grow millions of rainbow trout to manage a fish population of a network of rivers across the central part of North America. And so here is a common pooled asset, 100 years old, because they had overfished all of these rivers. And so we have 100 years of success that river trout exist in the central part of North America because of a network of national fisheries and marine, or uh, in this case, freshwater river fish biologists studying the ecosystems of all of these rivers. And one of the problems is that they put in dams in most of these rivers. And when you put in a dam, one of the things that happens is that the water gets warmer because the continually running water off the mountains maintains a temperature that is good for river trout. But when you have giant lakes, you have trout and bass and other kinds of fish that live in different environments. So they have a giant research network, which is a huge commons. They have a giant fisheries network, which is recreation and economics, all integrated across about half of North America. It's huge. And for a 100 years, they have been managing a diverse set of fish populations within the rivers of the United States. And Neosho is the first national fishery. Uh, I'm sorry, the National Fish Hatchery where they actually hatch and ship millions of fish across the United States through these river systems is a 100-year success story because those fish, you know, those rivers are not dead. Those rivers are not overfished. They collaboratively manage through local governance, local watersheds managing their own fish populations, coordinated as a research and transport system with fish hatcheries. So we've actually gotten really good at managing very complex economic processes, but our economic paradigm blinds us to seeing them. So those are two large-scale examples of success that show not only can it be done, it is being done successfully right now. And that is a part of, notice that that sounds like um, economics and recreation and um, ecological science which means it might sound like it's far from indigenous wisdom, but actually a lot of these practices evolve, or they're actively informed by indigenous participation with the wisdom practices of the indigenous people of those places. And so we end up finding that the the, the biologists are talking with the indigenous people, and some of the biologists are actually like Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a botanist and an indigenous woman. Some of the indigenous are some of the scientists are also indigenous people. And the worlds of knowledge are already blended in practice. And so therein lies hope <laughs> for the future.
0: Thank you for that. Those are wonderful stories. I think this is a nice segue into the challenge of judging, to use words you've, I've heard you use in a, in a previous presentation, what to compost uh, what to what to help transform, reinvigorate, and what to let uh, run its course, um, and sort of not put our energy there. And thinking now towards institutions or norms, or however you want to take the the premise of the question. And if you could just share how, again, as a designer in this trajectory, knowing the long history, knowing the intention to give us the best chance at humanity surviving and in alignment with our surrounding ecology where do you where do you look for opportunities to transform with from within and then if you'd like to comment on where to not bother then it would also be interesting as well
1: it's helpful to have a conceptual framework for this part of the conversation and the framework i'll bring in comes from futures studies which is ways of creating scenarios for the future and the framework is called Causal layered analysis, which is built on the understanding that there are different layers of causation that create human history. So if you're going to create a scenario of the future and reconstruct the past, there are different levels of causation. And in causal layered analysis, there are four levels. The deepest level is called the mythic or the metaphoric level. This is like um, moving from the clockwork universe of Galileo and Descartes to the ecological universe of a living planet and a living universe. That's metaphoric level, mythic level. Those metaphoric or mythic changes tend to occur slowly and they tend to last for a long time. Once a metaphor is in place, it can last for hundreds or thousands of years. And then there's a level above it, which is the level of, um, sometimes they call it the level of discourse, which is the level of how those metaphors are expressed as social norms and ideas and narratives so that those metaphors become expressed in different domains in different ways. And that level gives rise to the third level up, which is the management of institutions, which is the management of policies and practices. And so that second level, that level of discourse, tends to last for decades to two to three generations, and it gives rise to institutions. So like, for example, during the time of the Great Depression in the 1920s and 30s, one thing that was created was social demographics and macroeconomics which is that they did not gather data about family like household income then they invented the census bureau and so they had a discourse that said we need to manage large-scale affairs of society and that discourse includes naming things we need to track and this is at a level of multiple decades conversation, they change more slowly, so that we give rise to institutions and frameworks, like the Census Bureau, or the IRS in the United States, or other tax agencies, or you know the um, Environmental Protection Agency, or the Ministry of Environment in a particular country, that gives rise. So there's the mythic level, which is deep. Then there's the discourse level. The discourse says, what do we know? It's the epistemology what is knowable and what is important to us as a society, that then gives ri- rise to the third level, which is the level of institutions and policies, which tend to change on time frames of like five to 30 or 40 years. You know, you can create a short-term or medium-term policy. And then there's this level of day-to-day current affairs. All four levels can cause changes and they can ca- have causation to cascade up and down. So the reason I named this is that when we talk about what to compost and what to keep, the most important level is the mythic or metaphoric level. So we need to compost anything from the machine metaphor of the clockwork universe. Anything that treats jobs like a machine, that treats workers like a machine, the industrial, the factory model of education, you know, contract work around money and financial exchanges, and this uh, reductionistic signaling of value based on productivity and money. We have to compost all of that, because that is deeply tied to the mythic level of a clockwork universe. And then we need to elevate and protect and cultivate anything from the ecological living universe. Now, at the discourse level, this tells us that the things we should care about need to be based in biomimicry and living systems, the well-being economy, flourishing, human thriving, holistic health, public health, Planetary health. What do we care about? We care about holistic health. Why? Because we care about the well-being of living beings and living ecosystems. That is the discourse level. Anything that is life-destroying and mechanical and connected to the clockwork universe needs to be composted. At the institutional level, we will see that most of our institutions are entrenched processes of the clockwork universe, which means most of them are ill-suited to our challenge. And we see that because they're so dysfunctional. But there are individual people within them. There are pilot projects within them. There are cross-cutting programs within them that can survive the breakdown of the institutions. Because they're always in the interstitial space. Or what people in innovation studies, the place where there's an edge effect. They're not central to the institution. They're way out on the periphery. They're probably not very well supported. And those people and those ideas and those processes will find a new institutional form within the discourse of the living universe as the institutions fail. And the day-to-day discourse is mostly distraction and mostly bullshit, mostly reaction, so we mostly ignore it, which means we focus on the deep, long-term work of cultivating an ecological understanding of the living universe, talk about what it means to have holistic health and well-being, and build institutions and practices in support of that, and any institutions that don't do it, step away from them. Or sca- um, scavenge and salvage what is from a living systems perspective within them. So an example would be, you might go to the Harvard Business School and see most of its structure is needs to be composted. But there's that one professor with the students with that one course, and man, that's living systems. OK, so if Harvard goes away, how would that continue? And then you start to see how to discern what to keep and what to let go. So you have to go up and down the levels and get back to the mythic or metaphoric level of the ecological worldview and living systems and holistic health and well-being. And what are well-being economies? What are regenerative economies? You know, regenerative economy and well-being economy are talking about the same thing because regeneration is a process of living systems. And it's it's a living systems approach. But living systems that are not machine systems, because, you know, the word systems, that means a lot of systems thinking goes away because it's machine metaphor. That's the work of Nora Basin and Nora Bateson and warm data and those kinds of things is a lot of systems thinking is industrial machine metaphors. And so, um, so I don't know if that, if that's enough clarity to say actually a lot of the current institutional structure is already dying because it's machine metaphor. But in the cracks of it, there's lots of living system stuff going on. And now we can tell is the living universe, part of the machine universe continue.
0: Yeah, that's great. I think that's a a wonderful framework. And it, it makes me think of uh, just the layers of nuance and challenge there, because you could have pure authentic intention focused on one dimension. Say healing trauma and social relationships, but being completely negligent or unaware of some ecological impact that one's having. That you could say this group, this institution is on the right trajectory; they're going to get there. Let's let's put energy there. Let's believe in that. Um, I wonder, given that kind of circumstance, would there be, in addition to the framework you just laid out, of at the mythic, at the institutional, at the discourse, at the day to day. In that mythic living systems view. Are there any key elements of practices or approach that you would lay out as sort of prerequisite requirements of where to put our energy?
1: There are two, and it's actually really simple and very human because humans are not machines. You know, most of our workforces that people are in are, are machine metaphors, and that's why they they suck. You know, people really don't like the places where they work um, because they're not human which means they're not living places. And those two things, Well, I will say three, connection, belonging, and purpose. Purpose is connected to passion. Passion is connected to connection. Connection is, is part of belonging. They're all related, but I would say belonging and connection and purpose. Individual and collective purpose. Belonging is probably the most important, but it's expressed through connection. People come into a place of belonging through connection. So connection is often where we start. Connection helps us cultivate a sense of belonging. But we cultivate the sense of belonging by clarifying and living into our purpose. And all of this is healing work. Every bit of that implies some kind of healing. So I would say oftentimes what happens is people focus on opportunity, project, and its relationship to funding which is where money distorts the field. But if it starts at a place of connection and belonging, and then gathering the resources and support, meaning if money is needed, gathering the money around the purpose of connection and belonging, then it's it might still go but it's less likely to. And so that's what I found in practice is connection leading to belonging expressed through purpose and sustained as a dynamic of interaction. Um, and that this is a profound healing process. So it's, it's not easy to do. But it's incredibly nourishing. After being in such dehumanizing environments for most of our lives.
0: And have you noticed that? Is there a dimension of sort of a required humility? Or when you have those present, of that, that people will embrace that journey of a mythic living systems lens?
1: Well, what's interesting is that an unhealthy ego, even Sigmund Freud, who many of his ideas turned out to be incorrect, but he had some really profound, important insights. Even Freud named this, like narcissism is an unhealthy and insecure ego. So even if you use his language of ego, which is a bit problematic. So, you know, we have to be careful about how we use the word is that humility arises when our ego is healthy. And that's when we feel connected. That's when we feel like a healthy relationship to something larger than ourselves. Humility is almost like the consequence of connection in a way that when we feel connected, our need, you know, the insecurity in ourselves starts to relax. And as that starts to relax, humility can arise more naturally. And so that's a multi-directional thing. It's not simply that one causes the other, but that the context of connection allows the insecurity to calm, which is a trauma healing process, which helps humility to be sustained. Because then something else might trigger us back into fight or flight or, you know, reacting to some kind of panic. And that's where we feel the insecurity and those ego dynamics come up and the humility is harder to maintain. And this is why body-based physiological healing is an important part of this work. Um, but it's connection... Where its grounding is in connection, and belonging. And the connection and belonging actually rewire our bodies by feeling more connected, by feeling more accepted, by feeling more together, by feeling less alone, um, which creates more sense of security and togetherness, and that leads to belonging. And you can see they're all they're all woven together. Um, so yeah, the the humility is necessary. But if we require humility before participating, we may never get to it. Whereas if we help cultivate connection, then humility is closer than it would have been otherwise.
0: That's great. That's great. I want to shift paces a little bit and get to, I want to at least get a a brief summary of the book in here. There's so many interesting avenues to go in, but I, I want to put a little bit of a twist on it and keep it in the context of, where to invest our energies what to compost what not and i want to ask you to share a brief introduction to the state of the world and where we are and imagine you're speaking to a grandmother a busy mother and father and a teenage child that are all very optimistic and enthusiastic about the challenges ahead through the lens of say SDGs and mainstream climate, but we can do it. And that you want to let them know where you think we are and what they should be aware of.
1: I'll start by saying that um, the book I wrote has an interesting name. It's The Design Pathway for Regenerating Earth. And you can just see there are several words. The means I think there's only one. Design means we have to intend to, we have to do it because we mean to. We have to actually apply our knowledge and service to what we're trying to do. I don't think it'll happen without intending to do it. Pathway means that we create it by walking it and it doesn't exist yet. And it's about healing the entire planet. So it's at every level. So the name, the name of the book already holds all of this. And what I would say to people right now is that we are in the middle of a planetary crisis. Largely because we don't feel connected to our sense of belonging. That we are part of the earth. And that the earth is our home. And that the whole earth needs to be well for us to be well. I should sound a lot like indigenous people right now. (laughs) This is what they all say. And that the well-being of the individual and the well-being of the whole are inextricably linked. And right now, We feel unhealthy, we feel unwell because we're not caring for the whole, which means we also cannot care for ourselves. So if I was to speak to a mother or a grandmother, I mean, I'm a father of a six-year-old daughter, so to to the parents out there, I would say, if you're worried about the future for your child, it's because you can feel that we are not well and that we are not taking care of the well-being of future generations. I think that's pretty obvious everywhere around us. There's an existential malaise. We feel so much anxiety and fear about this. And that fear comes from feeling separated, of feeling isolated, of feeling powerless. And the way, the pathway, that we can intentionally walk is the pathway of connection and belonging. To remember that we're part of the earth, see that the only way we can be part of the earth is to be somewhere within the earth, and to know our place within the earth. And we know our place by knowing the land that gives us life. Where does our food come from? Where does our water come from? How do we have well-being for the land that gives us life? And how does that land connect to other land until eventually the whole planet has health? And this is the way that we must go within ourselves and discover our true humanity. True humanity is to be part of the earth because we evolved and arose as part of the expressions of life for this planet. And when we forgot that we are part of the life of the earth, we could kill the life of the earth without feeling the pain that we were killing ourselves. We turned off our compassion to the rest of life by believing we were separate. We turn on our compassion to the rest of life by remembering that that separation is an illusion. And the only way through is within. And the within is within ourselves, within our families, and within the planet as a whole. Because they were never disconnected except in our minds. And that illusion is what causes us so much sadness inside ourselves. And so the the approach of something like the Sustainable Development Goals, or the way all of our industrial institutions tell us to do it. I mean, look at the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals. Take the whole, divide it into a whole bunch of parts, treat them like little mechanisms, and treat the whole thing like a dashboard on a giant machine, and now tweak the robot. There's there's no connection. The connection's destroyed. That's why the SDGs will never get us where we need to go. Separating out the health of the whole planet into a whole bunch of individual targets is the opposite direction. Now, what the SDGs are intended for is a different story because if you look at them, they are goals for the health of water, the health of women and little girls, the health of education, the health of food. So we need to do is ask ourselves, what does it mean to be healthy in a holistic way? And we'll find that connection and belonging and a sense of history and a sense of identity are fundamental to health. And then from there, we take Humpty Dumpty and we put the fragments back together again. And we do it through the places where we live and the histories that we are a part of. And by remembering that all of the separations were just an illusion, we told ourselves like a bad dream that was never true. And that we wake up to belonging and connection because we always were connected and we always have belonged. And the pain we felt was in the nightmare, not in the reality. And the great awakening is exactly that, of remembering that we're home. And then caring for our home in a holistic and integrated way.
0: That was beautiful. I am very sensitive to the expectations that people have that I've gone through, the disappointment of learning, wait a minute, what's going on? At different stages. And my only... Takeaway at this stage of my journey is that that's just gonna keep going. You know, I got some sense I'm still learning and I'll keep learning, but it is very much in line with this It it is nourishing it enriches when it becomes more holistic The fragmented pieces can be helpful as conceptual, you know more accessible concepts, but then they must be put back into their whole. but the journey of worldviewing or finding our homeostasis, finding our like, okay, I understand how things are to whatever degree I need so that I can get up in the morning and uh, do, my, do my daily activities, right? That landscape of, I don't know, call it social technologies, norms, what, narratives, the landscape of the narratives that are proposing a complete view of this is the way it is and the number of those that will lead to devastating disappointments because of mismanaged expectations. I'm just going to ask to comment on the landscape of the narratives and I know it's something that you focus a lot on. It's not a specific question, but it's a concern of mine for how we can have real genuine intention and good energy come in go down a very well-polished marketing onboarding pathway that leads to a lot of effort and then collision with a wall of realization that oh my god i'm not sure if this was helping hurting or neutral but i certainly wasn't being told the whole picture how do we clean up the narrative space
1: one thing that is important to know about ecology is ecology seeks harmony but never achieves harmony It's always seeking through all of its interactions. And one thing that's happened by humans believing ourselves to be separate from the rest of nature is we have created a huge disharmony. And I'll speak to two levels of disharmony that we have to reckon with. One is, if we create a lot of life, we also create a lot of death. Because every living being will die. And by creating such a large number of humans, by destroying so many other ecosystems, we are already the living expressions of death for non-human species. We have to come to terms with that spiritually. I am here as a physical body alive today because of fossil fuels, which is dead sunlight in the forms of plants and animals from 200 million years ago. And I'm here because those fossil fuels were used to create industrial agriculture, to destroy ecosystems and create extinctions today so that the human population could grow so large which means the size of the human population is out of harmony in two ways. One is the human population is way too large, and it is literally a mountain of death. That It was created by killing other beings, and it is created so that it will all die. So we have to develop a healthy relationship with death. But then the second one, second reason, the second way we're in disharmony is that we don't recognize that that death is to be celebrated. That life is a continual dance of creation and destruction. All of our world religions tell us this. And so, um, like I said before we started the interview today, my brother passed away earlier this week. He died of cancer. And I feel peace about it because I watched his body break down from cancer during a period of two years. But he also let go of anger. He let go of depression. He came to a place of love, generosity, and peace as his body was breaking down and dying. And a lot of that depression and a lot of that anger came from his feeling like he would never be whole and that he always needed to force things to happen. And he gradually softened to a place where his own death was the continuation of that process for his own children. And so we have to learn how to see that death is not just a part of life that's natural. It's like, yeah, yes, that's like that's a factual statement. But that there's a wholesomeness in the way that death continues the love of life by recognizing how it works. There's this deep spiritual connection to what death really means. And so a lot of people are afraid of the human population collapsing. They're afraid to believe it's possible. And then they cling to a delusion of the human population that is so far from harmony that it was already built by causing the extinction of about a million species, and that it guarantees millions more species going extinct as long as it stays. And the hubris to believe that our and our uh, descendants should inherit that destruction because we are not mature about death is to undermine our own relation, our own relationship to future life. And so there's a very deep spiritual component of this, regardless of what religion or spiritual um, expression someone has. Which is, we have to come to grips with the fact that the human, human, the huge human population is an expression of massive death and destruction. And every human being we see in love is here because death and destruction was required to create the life we see. And we have to somehow love that. We have to somehow love it. Not love it as, oh, it's so great, we destroyed all those things. But love it as, well, life is an expression of of death, and I love life anyway. And this is the deep part of this. Belonging to the earth means finding harmony with the rest of life. And life and death are inevitably intertwined. So we have to find peace with death. There's a beautiful liberation that occurs when we do that but not until we've done the grieving work to get there. So I would just say, keep going, (laughs) keep moving, keep embracing, because grieving and loving are the same thing as Joanna Macy likes to say, that to grieve is to love. They're two sides of the same coin, but death and life are also two sides of the same coin. The sooner we come to grips with that, the sooner we can help death to help life and celebrate life even as death is occurring so that we can create the conditions for life in the future. Denying death means we deny life to the future. Trying to live forever denies how evolution occurs. It denies how life works. So for all the transhumanists who want to uh, you know, upload their brains to silicon and live forever, people like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, what a sad commentary on the human condition that they hate life so much they want to destroy it by seeking immortality because they do not understand what it means to belong to the dance of life, which is to give up your body to future life and to be part of that future life by by dying. And so there's a deep spiritual journey here that we can all move toward. I don't know if we all get there by the time we die. Some people fight death right to the last minute, um, but they're still going to die. The long-term outcome of life is death. And death is the process that enables new life. These are just sort of like biological facts, but with deep, deep spiritual implications because of the way humans work. So, um, So I would maybe let it sit there that all ecology has limits because of the need to seek harmony. We are far beyond those limits now with profound consequences that are not just in the future. We have to reckon with what our ancestors, and we ourselves have already done in the past. And in doing that, we are freed to participate in the continuation of life instead of fighting against it. Just like my brother, who did not fight his death this week, he came to peace within himself, whereas he had fought death all of his life with anger and depression before having a reconciliation with his own death. And so um, you can see the paradox. But there it is. I hope that helps.
0: That was wonderful. I want to ask if you'll ride on that sentiment and, and touch on you paint, uh, You 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 go in a little bit to the indigenous presence in the Amazon. And we spoke a lot about how our species has grown at the destruction, at the cost of a lot of the ecology, but that we are also capable of being tremendous stewards and bringing gifts to the abundance of life. And that, sure, there will always be death, but not in the proportion that it is. And so just to avoid the misunderstanding that um, there's too many people and so we just need to let them die, that um, if you could share your thoughts on what is our role, what are we being called into, um, and, and what we're really capable of.
1: What's really beautiful about the Amazon rainforest is that we now know conclusively at least 11% of the rainforest, which is the second largest forest on Earth after the Boreal Forest of the Arctic Circle, the second largest forest. About 11% of it, minimum, there may be more, but we have confirmed evidence, which is a huge area of land, has higher biodiversity and higher resilience than it would have had without human presence. Just let that sink in. For at least 14,000 years, so for a very long period of time, going all the way back to the last ice age, the human presence in parts of the Amazon increased the health and well-being of the Amazon. If humans were not there, the Amazon would have had less life in it. This seems counterintuitive with our destructive civilizations that we're in today. The way that they did it, and the way that some of them still do it right now, is by remembering that humans are part of a larger web of life, and a web of life can be guided through ecological succession to create mature, really integrated, and holistic ecosystems. And that humans are a part of this process if we understand that we're a part of it, and if we see and feel our relationship to it, which means the people who do this deeply belong to those ecosystems. These people who lived in the Amazon in this way and who live there now deeply belong to the forest. They are literally people of the forest. They are not people in the forest. They're not people managing the forest. They are in and of and from and part of the forest as their felt experience. And because we know this, in many places, the Amazon is just one example. And for those who want to read about it, there's a book called Cultural Forests of the Amazon. So we'll look it up. Um, we'll just give you an entry point into this that humans can become integrated with our larger surroundings in a more intimate way than other animals can, because we can integrate into them fully while knowing and caring about it at the same time. So not just as an expression of ecological function, we can experience it as an expression of love and belonging. And so this is the opportunity for humans to love and belong as part of the collective health of the earth in the places where we are that have greater health and well-being than they would have without humans there. Humans can be a net benefit to the earth by integrating ourselves into our landscapes. And this is evidentially true. It has been demonstrated with evidence. We know it can be done because it has been done and it is being done now. And so part of the thing that we need to salvage is our belief that humans should be part of the earth as part of embracing this this process of transformation that we're living through right now. So I hope that's helpful.
0: That's very nice. And a lot to chew on. I think this is a a great place to, to round off. I normally ask a couple questions, but I think we've touched on most of those uh, points throughout the conversation. This has been great, Joe. Thank you for... Bearing your soul and all of your knowledge and sharing your presence and taking the time. Do you have any final thoughts or comments that you'd like to share as we close?
1: I would just say that um, we don't have time to waste. So therefore I encourage you to slow down. Everyone is listening, slow down, connect to yourself, connect to your heart, find what is most important to you. And only then, do you move forward? Because we don't have time to waste. And so um, time is of the essence, and the essence of life is time. So I hope, that, I hope that listening to this conversation that Jay and I have been having will help more people to find their deep sense of purpose. And um, you know, join us in the work that we're doing, but also do it wherever you are, because this is what the Earth needs of her humans. And thank you for listening.
0: Wonderful. And do you want to direct people to a specific, I'll put some links in the description, but Earth Regenerators, um, what? Uh, where can people find you?
1: We are birthing a design school for Earth Regeneration that starts in a, about two weeks. It's sort of like the next evolutionary leap from what we had done in Earth Regenerators. And so I can send you a link to um, for people to join. It'll be a new platform that uh, is Standing on its own because it's, it's really, really focused on the on the ground integration into bioregions. Yes. Whereas earth regenerators, as I think you've experienced, has really focused on social scaffolding and social supports, which it continues to do very well and is not really integrated well enough to be able to bring this landscape activation on the ground. And so we're creating a new space to really focus on that piece and then cr- that, that element to great integration in the future. So I would encourage people to join Earth Regenerators for the social supports and connection, and then also the Design School for Regenerating Earth if they're ready to work with us in bioregions on the ground.
0: Wonderful. I'll put that in the description and definitely encourage people to check out Earth Regenerators as well as the new Design School. Awesome. Joe, thank you so much. Until next time and onward.
1: You're very welcome and thank you. I look forward to the next round.